that's you did not warn me that's how you would start it <laughs> right i just clicked record thinking oh yeah he's got, he's got a, a genuinely interesting cold open topic and you just right for the throat yeah right for the throat man <laughs> how else do you announce that america is saved our savior is back our, our political savior, savior okay the conscience oh. of America is back where he belongs. Exactly. Trump is in the White House. No, that's not that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> even if even if he uh thinks that he is back in the White House, it doesn't make it true yet. Okay, so why why is America saved? <laughs> John Stewart is back uh or will be back to uh host host the daily show uh he's he's gonna be a guest host uh he's only gonna host on monday nights uh and only uh for basically the duration of the election but he's gonna continue to produce it uh until 2025 uh with i think the uh uh he has a, a partner that's going to be a showrunner with him uh as they they you know find a, a new permanent host but john stewart is back at the daily show uh which for me at least is very very exciting i do got to say i i disagree with him on a lot of his politics but i think he's absolutely hilarious and I do think he does a great job of calling BS where he sees it. Yeah. I think he tends to call it more frequently on one side than the other, but that's, I think, more due to his personal views. And that's fine. Yeah. That's how the I world mean, works. I can't argue with that at all. <laughs> but I, I, I do think he's a pretty funny guy. Yeah. Uh, I I just personally, uh, uh, because I, I tend to agree with... Uh, pretty much all of his politics um for me it's exciting because i think i was i was really really disappointed with the timing that he left the daily show in 2016 because it was i think just a few months before the election and for me it felt like uh uh we really really needed his voice at that time uh, and it's been, uh, I mean, he's done a, you know, a few things, <clears throat> uh, since then, uh, he's, he's been really, really active with, uh, certain like political activist campaigns in particular, uh, uh, making sure that, uh, Congress, uh, renews the, um, the healthcare uh, bill that provides help for first responders, uh, who were, uh, involved with nine 11. Um, he also had, uh, Apple TV, uh, show, um, which was, was good, but didn't really get a lot of, uh, I think the same viewership. And then, uh, uh, from what I understand, uh, the show was canceled because he refused to uh, take or refused to abandon an episode that was critical of China. Uh, and somebody 
not saying who, but somebody pressured Apple to have them uh, like just scrap the episode. And he was like, well, then I'm just going to quit. Um, That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's I think I think regardless of whether you agree with his politics, uh, I think um, it's it's really hard to deny that that uh, he has a lot of integrity. Yeah, he really stands his ground on a lot of things um, that I think you should not budge on. And I Mm -hmm. like that. And there are also some other things that he has come out and talked about how his views have changed over time. Oh, yeah, certainly. I feel like he often gets painted by people on the right because he is a a left-leaning Democrat. He's open about that. And I think because of that, he gets painted by a lot of people on the right as some super ultra far liberal person. But I I feel like he's much more moderate than a lot of Republicans will give him credit for. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I also, I totally get why, uh, you know, people think that he is a super far left Democrat. Um, I'm not even sure that he's not. Um, but I think that, that he's at the very least he's informed, uh, sure. his criticisms are well thought out and, you know, people can disagree with his viewpoint, but he's, uh, he does his due diligence when he's arguing against something. Uh, and, sure. and it's really just a matter of, of ideology. Um, I think that, that people have a problem with which you know that's fair he's he's definitely uh on one side of the political spectrum well speaking of someone who's on one side of the political spectrum i think that's a great segue into our first topic we wanted to talk about what's going on in argentina well i wanted to talk about what's going on in argentina because i feel like it's a experiment and a lot of my personal political beliefs sort of hinge on how this experiment goes. <laughs> Honestly, I I think experiment is a perfect word to describe it. Um, I mean, uh, should we should we introduce the the topic before we we get into oh, it? Oh oh, why don't you do our opener like our who oh. we are? We haven't done that yet. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Agreeable Disagreements. It is a podcast where two friends with differing ideologies uh, talk about politics. Oh, man. And we today want to talk about the libertarian politics, or at least libertarian ideals, in the sense of, or in the context of Argentina's current president, Javier Millet, um, who... Has he has he actually taken office or is he? Oh yeah, president? yeah. He's he's been president oh, wow, that was when fast. he was sworn in. Um, I think it was November twenty something, or at least that's December. when he was elected. Yeah, he was okay, sworn so, in in December. Wow, that's fast. I mean, yeah, but it's a significantly smaller country than the United States, so there's fewer wheels to move. Yeah, and even then, that's, that's pretty fast for us too. You know, end of November, sorry, mid-November, we have elections, and then beginning of January, you're sworn in. I mean, it's like January seventeenth. Okay, so you got two months, like that, right? 
Two months, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so if you don't know who Javier Millet is, he is a very... Buckle up. <laughs> Imagine Ron Swanson. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, totally. Ron Swanson's a huge libertarian. His whole slash it, slash it, bring sure. this whole thing crumbling down. Like, that. that is what Javier Millet is. He is very much like, we need to bring the government to heal. We need to cut everything that is not essential. And I have a big list of things that are not essential. And on day one, we're just going to cut all of them effective immediately. And I don't know if he did it day one, but he did do it pretty quick. Sure. But I feel like you're to say that he is Ron Swanson because they are both libertarians doesn't fully capture who Javier Malay is. And there's some definite, like definite, uh, uh, differences between the two of them that I think we should talk about. Yeah. For example, one speaks English. The other, uh, I'm not convinced he does. I don't know. That that is so far down my list. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is so wildly like, out of the scope of what I was even thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, I only think I only thought of that because he recently spoke at the world economic forum and you know, one of the international languages for that is English. And one of them is French. Of course, one of them is also Spanish and he gave it in Spanish, but yeah. he gave his speech in Spanish. But uh, yeah, anyway, give me, give me some of your reasons why you don't think it's a good comparison. Cause I agree. It's not perfect, but you know, I mean, Oh God, where do I start? I, okay. Mostly, this is really the reason why I want to talk about him. Um, He, and and I swear to God, this is all true. This is not me misconstruing anything or taking it out of context. This is stuff he has said and done. Man, it really sounds like you're about to take stuff out of context and misconstrue a lot of things. I promise you, I am not. I'm not racist. I am not. But... And he and he would be no, but he would be the first person <laughs> to tell you. And in fact, he frequently does tell people about this. Oh, I think I know um, what you're gonna talk about. Keep going. So he's um one might describe him as a dog person. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So at some point, he had a, a beautiful dog. I don't know what, what uh, kind it's a mastiff. of... It's a mastiff. Uh, ma- yeah, mastiff. That, that makes sense. So he had this beautiful mastiff named Conan. Conan, unfortunately, passed away. Right. He then um, had Conan cloned uh, at least four times, if not more. Uh, all of the clones are named after uh, prominent uh economists uh with uh but not john maynard Keynes because he absolutely hates uh keynesian economics a lot of Um, a lot of libertarians do yeah i mean that i understand what i don't understand (laughs) is and again this is according to him Mm -hmm. uh one of them advises him on like foreign policy one of them, meaning one of the dogs, it 
advises him on like his personal life. One of, uh, one of the, the clone dogs. One of the clone, yeah, one of the clones of of Conan. Um, basically, he uses his dogs as his personal advisors, and he legitimately thinks that they do speak to him. And that is one of the tools that he uses to make policy decisions. Okay, I know. I this don't think he's from serious his about own that. Mouth. Okay, I, there's a lot of things that I have said that would be along those lines that a lot of people would probably think are serious that I can promise you are not. All right, I, I mean, do not look, think if, he. If it's a bit, he is really committing to it. Because he is, it's not just like one instance that he's done this. This is kind of um, a, a, a very, very frequent thing that he talks about and describes. And at no point does he ever let on if it is a bit. I I mean, I I think he's committing to the bit because it's so ridiculous and he, I mean, you look at a picture of the guy, nothing about him screams, I'm going to be a normal person in this interview, right? No, I agree. Because part, uh, of, part of his issues have also been media treatment of politicians and how the media will just latch on to ridiculous things and run with it. And so I would not be surprised if he is saying that just so the media will latch on to a ridiculous thing and run with it i don't know I, I i think i think that the the subtext and his like his body language and everything else that that does matter in communication would say otherwise the mm. other thing and i'm gonna i'm gonna uh uh we should do like a timestamp if if you want to cut this out the other okay. thing that Hold he on, did just, say write this down Timestamp. Okay. Okay, timestamp written down. Continue. Right. The other thing that he has also talked about on uh, on national media, I think you know where this one's going too. I, I don't know. That's the thing. Because oh. I've been more focused on his policies, not his persona. He has said to national Argentinian media, uh, that he ejaculates once every three months, <laughs> which honestly, I I don't even care if that does influence his uh, policy decisions. I just think it's hilarious. Again, I'm gonna say that's that's along his that's along his thing of I'm just gonna say ridiculous things. I mean, because uh, let's be honest, I mean, that is a huge deal to a lot of politicians right now is how they're being treated by the media. Whether you're yeah. left, right, I mean, no politician is being treated 100% fairly by media. And to some degree, I don't think they should, right? There's got to be some amount of criticism and freedom of press. But yeah. the kinds of things that the media latches onto nowadays are these ridiculous things that, you know, they could be asking him questions about bricks. They could be asking him questions about, you know, all the ministries that he's slashing. But instead, they're asking him these ridiculous ridiculous questions about him dating a model or having cloned dogs so yeah if i'm the guy who's been talking for months about how the media doesn't pay attention to the right things and is sensationalizing terrible stupid things i would say terrible stupid things just to prove a point sure but you're also a rational person and 
if who's to say if, he's not and who's to say that if i wouldn't make these comments that you would stop <laughs> saying i'm a rational person but i'm saying if he's not uh which personally i don't i don't think he is um if he's not how are you going to distinguish between the two and especially when you become the leader of a nation maybe it's time to rein it in a little bit but what i will say is especially in the case of the 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 last factoid uh i mm. just uh was talking about um and also with the dogs it's from what i've seen it's very much his uh desire to bring these up and the interviewers would really rather not talk about them he yeah, is I'll the honest, one that might be the case he's the one who's introducing these tangents and and as as hard as these these poor interviewers are trying they kind of just have to let him uh like go off and 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 you know talk about this stuff uh in the hopes that eventually it gets back to something relevant but regardless it's objectively hilarious i mean that's true i will i will say he's being hilarious in the interviews and i think that might be part of his um part of his campaign part of his yeah. thing is if i come off as a funny guy I would say shtick, or a, but... a shtick that's a good word for it yeah yeah a shtick that's a bit of a shtick and if he's if he's gonna stick to the shtick then i think it might help him long term also let's keep in mind one thing that i i mean you've visited other countries you've got friends from other countries you know that humor varies from culture but i've noticed that it varies even more across language barriers and who's yes. to say Honestly, that this stuff, I mean, I don't know because I'm not Argentinian. Maybe if someone from Argentina is listening to this, you can leave a comment or something and tell us if what he says is hilarious. But I would, I would question, or sorry, I would be hesitant to say it's ridiculous stuff because maybe it's comedy gold where he's from. <laughs> I think, I think it's so sure. Uh, I don't think that that is what is like the context around when he said these things sure. just because of the, the pretty obvious uh, distaste in the interviews, interviewers like mannerisms. Um, and also I think, you know, regardless uh, he is in a very high position of power. And I think, you know, if if he is trying to make a point or he's trying to you know put the spotlight on the unfair treatment uh by the media of politicians at a yeah. certain point when you have that much of a responsibility you, you have to you have to stop and you actually have to like buckle down and i don't see that happening from him and you know maybe that's just a a uh a misstep on his part and not like you know quote unquote reading the audience um but f i mean f everything i've seen points to the fact that he really is this deranged i don't know if i want to say deranged but maybe convinced of those things let's let's put a pause on on that and focus on what matters because he can say and talk and do these 
silly things. I want to. If I want to take results, issue, I want to take issue with you insinuating the, the fact that he has claimed that his clone dogs are his advisors does not matter. But continue. <laughs> I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. I'm saying let's look at. I guess I did say that, didn't I? You did. What yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> What I'm saying is let's focus on the results because, I mean, honestly, we all have worked with that person who is really good at their job, but is kooky as hell. Some of us are that person. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This this might be a good time to point out that I work exclusively alone and (laughs) you could have just said it. You're talking about me. Right. That's you could have just said that. No. <laughs> I work one hundred percent by myself and I don't think that's by accident. Oh man. Um no, but I mean we've all had those coworkers, professors, school teachers, whoever, people around us who are somehow really good at their job, but are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where you're just like, how are you allowed to be here? And then, like, Michael Scott, you know, Michael Scott, you're like, how is he the boss? But then you see him close some of those really big deals, and you're like, oh, that's why you're the boss. Right. You know? When he when he is negotiating with uh, Idris Elba. Uh, no, it's Tim Meadows. Uh, Idris Elba is Charles Minor. Oh, oh, you're talking about that yeah, part. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of a yeah, different I'm talking, part of the series. I'm talking about when, when they're convincing them to buy back the, the – or to give them back their jobs and yes, buy out okay. the Michael Scott Paper Company. See, and I it's was thinking like, of the one – oh, sorry. Keep going. You go ahead. Oh, it's it's just – I mean it's it's that whole scene sums up why Michael got to his position and why oh, he yeah. deserves to be there. I mean it well, was it was a fantastic uh, play on his part and a great I, scene. I think earlier in the series, there's the episode where Tim Meadows is like, he's, he's a city manager or something. And he's, um, Oh yeah. When they go out to like uh, Chili's or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Jan, Jan keeps trying to push it. And he's like, stop talking about it, Jan. And then waits until things are just the right time. So right. who knows, yeah. you know, because maybe Javier Millet is a crazy guy who does some crazy things, but if he can, I mean, if he can deliver, I, I don't know that I care if he's talking to his dogs or not. I'll be honest I mean, with you. Yeah, I, I, I don't really have an argument with that, and especially <laughs> in the case of Argentina, because Argentina at a uh, hundred years ago, they were, um, they were like one of the largest economies in the world, and they're still the third largest economy in South America. But they have been hit by some really, really hard uh, economic um, setbacks. And they've tried a lot of different solutions and nothing has worked. And that's kind of what uh, Javier Malay has been kind of campaigning on is that, you know, it's time to try something out of the box. But I do think he's maybe taken it a little bit too far um, because we I think any functioning country does need at least some uh, source of revenue. Uh, or someone to make sure that the people who are building the roads are are not just uh, you know hiring their their cousin to uh, I don't know put down uh, uh, I was gonna say like bootleg uh, asphalt but I, 
I don't even know what that would be. Uh, like his, from what I understand about his policies, he is, uh, uh, I think John Oliver described him and this might be inaccurate, but I think it's John Oliver. I mean, well, uh, I love John Oliver, meaning that it is accurate or are you? No, I mean, I love John Oliver, but he is, he, I feel like, okay. To compare him to John Stewart and the daily show, I feel like the daily show is a news show. Mm-mm. No, I feel like it's, it's absolutely new- not. Hold and on, John Stewart but- would be the first person to tell you that. I feel like it is a news-driven comedy show. Yes. Whereas I feel like John Oliver is a comedy-driven show that features news. And um, there's a nuanced difference there. Yeah. Anyway, what were you saying? He described John Oliver described him as uh, described him as an anarcho-capitalist. Oh yeah, I, no, that's that's fair. Yeah, that yeah. is one hundred percent fair. I, I don't think uh, Malay would have a problem with that. No, he he says that all the time. Yeah, um, but there's you know I I can I can understand like when I'm talking with someone like you who at times I don't know if this is like if you completely identify with the label, but at times describes yourself as a libertarian. I can understand. Sure. Yeah, like why you think that why uh you know the for the reasons that you hold that ideology why you hold that ideology and why it you know might make sense but you also understand that there needs to be some oversight and what javier malay is kind of advocating is for absolutely 100 percent no oversight so first of all, that's not entirely true. He's saying that there's a better way to oversee things than having a big brother government to do it, which I agree with. I think that, for example, if, if you're looking at the United States version, one of my big things is why do we have the federal government doing all of these things that the state's governments very much could and should be doing, right? Yeah. Um, but and also th- Argentina doesn't have the, that kind of uh, – that kind of setup. I mean, it makes sense in America where, you know, Oregon and I mean, they're a Indiana or New York might as well be different countries. They're a republic. So I, it's it's more similar to us than you think. Yeah, um, but I'm just saying that the 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 cultural differences because they're they're much smaller. Sure. Um, the the you know, the. There, there's a lot of differences that make them a, a somewhat more homogenous populace than sure the United States. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's true. But if anything, that would make his job easier because you don't have nearly as many differing opinions and cultural viewpoints to bring into account. Right. right? Because West Coast... I was Coast, just saying that in regards to, like, like the states deciding. Right, 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 right. I think it makes more sense for them to have... A, a more federal, like more federal involvement. You're saying because, because they're smaller, a federal government that is in control makes more sense because it's easier for them to oversee a smaller number of people. Whereas we have a larger country, we need to split the responsibility up, or we may have need to split that responsibility up more. Yeah, I th- I think if you it, it or at the very least, it's it makes more, or I think it's. Yeah, easier for the federal government to take everyone's 
uh, needs and considerations into account when you don't have a, a vast, uh, you know, large, uh, like geographically large country where, you know, different corners of it are wildly different culturally i think i think some play and right i i don't know anything about the culture in argentina but i imagine it's it's probably not as complicated to make a one-size-fits-all solution there than it would be someplace like uh the u.s that's fair however i would i would simply counter that it's it's less about it's less about a diversification of opinion and more of a um, diversification of liberty, diversification of choice. Because, I mean, think about here in the United States. If I want to make a company in California, if I want to start my own business, how many lines of bureaucracy do I have to go through to start my own company in, you know, in Los Angeles? Yeah. Because you've, you've got tons of them. And if you look at compared to some of the more business-friendly states like Texas or Utah or Indiana – um, people are starting businesses all the time because it's so much easier to do that. And that's why you have a lot of these businesses leaving Seattle, leaving Silicon Valley for some of these you know, stereotypically more red states who are more business friendly, whether it's for taxing reasons or other reasons. And that's, I mean, that's part of it. And so one of the things he's trying to do is not just with the ability to start your own business, but with a lot of things in general, he's trying to make it easier for people to make their own financial decisions. And so a lot of the things he's done have been to not only um, encourage the federal government of Argentina, or sorry, the the government of Argentina, because I don't know if they call it a federal government, but not only to encourage them to lead by example, by slashing their budget, but also to create more abilities for companies and individuals to live more frugally and practice more frugally. So one of the first things he did was he cut the number of government ministries in half. He went from 18 down to nine. Um, and he laid off 5,000 public sector employees. And there's some pros and cons to that. Obviously the con is there's 5,000 people now who don't have a job. However, there's also, a, there's also 5,000 less people and half the, government entities that are making sure that these people who are these private citizens, these privately owned businesses are running their businesses ethically or not taking advantage of uh, uh, resources that uh, limit other people's access to the resources or a lot of things that, that regulation and, regulatory bodies are very much needed for and i'm like i i don't i don't want to say that that like uh i'm not advocating for a totally authoritarian super strong federal government what i'm saying is there is a place for this kind of oversight and i think he's uh I think he's really limited their ability to do the, the, the things that they should rightfully be doing 
So this this hits on one of the key tenets of libertarian economics, and I want to come back to it. But one of the pros, I wanted to hit this point too. One of the pros of laying off those 5,000 public sector employees is that he... Nope, that was too much. Oh, you're just in your light? Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. It was getting a little dark in here, but... <laughs> you're good. Uh... No, but one of the pros to that is these, are pe- these aren't just random jobs. These are positions that he says should not have existed in the first place and were created either out of corruption, created out of government greed, or created out of maybe a system where they were needed, but now where we are, we just can't afford them. So he's looked, he's not only Possibly, looking at, yeah. I mean, he's, cause he's not only looking at this and saying, okay, what do we, you know, what's too much regulation, but he's also looking at it and saying, we are in a financial crisis. So what can we do yes. to cut back like any organization should when they're spending way more, like we should, to be honest, when you're spending way, way more money than you're bringing in. You've got to cut that somewhere in order to make your finances make sense. And so, you know, I I don't know if his idea is that this would be the permanent solution. It very well might be. And if he's as libertarian as he appears to be, it probably is. But his, his here's main the thing idea that with, I don't understand. Though. Hold on one second. His main idea with these cuts is less about or is as much about deregulation as it is. We just don't need this. We can't afford this, so we're cutting out what we don't need. Sure. Hold on. Let me. I'm gonna turn on my actual room light, uh, and fix the lighting issue real quick. Sure. Go ahead. I also get policy advice from my dogs. Okay. Uh. Yes. <laughs> here's here's the thing, though. Sure. Um. I, I get that, but he doesn't seem like uh, the best person to be deciding what is essential and what isn't essential. He was a political pundit before getting into politics, but as far as I know, has not held uh, any office uh, as of yet. And before that, he was a uh, soccer goalie. So, and, and part of that is why uh, he appealed to so many people is because he's an outsider, but also he, he, he very much does not have the experience to be able to uh, know the nuances or the, the exact deficiencies within these, uh, these agencies that he's making cuts to. And it's entirely possible that, you know, they, that some of them are uh, positions that are ineffective or corrupt. Um, But I, I think uh, from what I know of uh, what I've learned about Argentinian politics, uh, just in the last few days when we decided to talk about this, um, it's, it's gone further than just that. And he is also cutting a lot of positions that are essential that are needed and maybe like effectual, but, uh, I mean, I don't know the specifics. I'm just going off of the word of people who have, you know, been within the public sector there for okay. their entire career. 
Because I'm looking at the one footballer who then was paid to talk about politics without ever actually having any experience within politics or the public sector. So, okay, I got two questions here. Um, first of all, if talking to John Stewart, if he were to run for any level of pu- a public office, would you vote for him? That's actually a really good question. Um, because I, if the answer is yes, then you need to reevaluate everything you just said about him being a pundit with little political experience. No, no, no. Um, I, 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 I think had I not already like thought a lot about this, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I probably, I mean, I definitely would have said yes, but there's two things. One, I have actually thought a lot about this. Um, and two, I've, I've listened to what he's said ab- about this exact same thing. Um, and, uh, and so I, I don't know if I, if I would, Sure. I, I agree with his Paul or I agree with his positions. I think he is a, a, not just a decent person, but a good person. I think he understands, uh, the issues, even the issues that I don't agree with his opinion, uh, opinion on, but I mean, I, I agree. He, he doesn't have any experience within politics and so I have to take that with a grain of salt, but more importantly, he would say and has said that he is not somebody that, that should be in public office sure. because he's a comedian. He, he's not, he's a pundit, but he describes himself as a comedian. Okay. But Al Franken was a comedian. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the beautiful things about our democracy is that, one, people have the right to say, hey, I don't think I should be a political office. And I think that's noble Mm -hmm. of him to recognize, hey, I'm I'm good where I'm at. I don't know that I would be good in other places. But it's also anybody can become anything. So who's to say that not everybody should. You're right. Not everybody should. I don't think Al Franken should have been a senator for so many decades. I mean, I obviously I disagree. Uh, I I liked Al Franken's uh, political positions. I didn't so much like the uh, the picture that he that he took of uh, him uh, uh, implicitly uh, groping a u.s service member uh and that's why he resigned um but i i i liked him as a politician um i liked him as a comedian i think that that's also kind of an outlier and i think that that john stewart might also be an outlier is it because i mean you look at people like trump who have done the same thing obviously more many more times and to a greater degree and so if you're willing to overlook that for Al Franken, then, I mean, that makes sense why a lot of people are willing to overlook that with Donald Trump. Because here's the thing, I've, I've noticed that worldwide, there is a huge distaste right now for people who are career politicians. And yeah. I mean, I've got that distaste. Why am I going to trust someone who has the ability to vote to raise their own salary, but won't lower my taxes? You know, because to me... Yeah, but 
just because they're a career politician doesn't make that any more likely. And the fact that they are currently a politician makes that more likely. True. But if you vote somebody in who has no political experience into a political office, then they then become the enemy in that scenario. And it and the the problem that I the the criticism I have with with what you're saying is that politics is the only field in existence where a lack of experience or skill set or any proven ability to be effective or good at your job is more respected than than uh having those things well i would the my comeback to that would be that it's because in our particular political system where it's a democracy we are built on the idea of you bring with you what you've built up to that point and that should be your experience right so my experience as a teacher for example is going to give me some very unique perspectives and drives as a potential politician um, just like you as a coffee roaster, right? Or someone else who's white collar or someone who's, you know, coming up from the dregs of society. Um, mm-hmm. People are going to bring all these different viewpoints to try and make a better society. And so with that in mind, like I, I could care less if he was a soccer goalie. Some athletes have made great politicians in other places. Um, it's not. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that. But it's not. I, if- it's not a go. good qualification. Go I'll agree with you saying I'm not going to vote for someone just because they're an outsider. I'm not going to vote for someone just because they're a pundit, just because they're a goalie. I also prefer to look at what are they currently saying and doing. And on that note, we were talking hold, about. Hold on, can, okay. can yeah, I go ahead? Can I just uh, address the the uh, I guess more ex- existential um, part of that the 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 whole thing about I, I understand why people don't trust career politicians um but i think i think you and i at least both know that that being a politician and politicking is much more about how you feel on issues and sure. how you're going to vote a lot of it is those you know backdoor deals those uh you know uh making concessions and 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 earmarking and pork barrel spending and and trying to you know work the system in order to to get the things that that you want for your constituents hopefully that your constituents also want and so what i feel like more what it's what it would be like um since you you know you referenced uh you know, our two careers, I feel it more what it would be like is, I mean, would you be comfortable with, uh, you know, say I knew uh, just everything about um, the history of the Soviet Union? All and right. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I know it's a No, stretch. you're, you're laying some coals here. No, what I'm saying is like, you're, say, you're, you're laying a good point here. Let's hear it. But say the only thing different about about me, Andrew, right now, and this hypothetical Andrew mm-hmm. was just that I had an encyclopedic knowledge about the Soviet Union. Okay. Would you let me in your classroom to teach your children <laughs> or I teach mean, your students? So here, here's the thing. like, if If the answer is anything but no, I'm going to have a conversation with your principal. <laughs> 
Well, uh, I'll have to send you her number because here's the thing. The answer is yes, I would, but I would have some specific restrictions and I would have uh, a very specific thing I would want you to talk about ahead of time. And the reason I would say yes is not because I would think you are a subject matter expert, but because if I'm telling, if I'm telling you, yes, Hey, come and give, or if I'm asking you come and give this presentation or come and teach this particular lesson, it's because I think you have a particular viewpoint that I'm not sure I could adequately express or that I think would be better expressed by someone other than myself. So for example, sure, yeah. I, I have I think had, because I have had guest I... teachers come in and talk to my students about things that, you know, they may not be super experts on, but they're more knowledgeable than me or have different perspectives that I just can't teach. And I, that's something I really value. So even if it's like you said, just an encyclopedic knowledge, there's going to be things that stick out to you more than stick out to me that are probably still going to be important for them to know about from your point of right. view. More what I'm getting at is, is the fact that I have, it, I have no experience or, or really skill uh, being a, an educator, much less be an educator to children. Sure. And that's, that's an incredibly important part of your job that makes you much more effective than somebody like me who has no experience, has no knowledge of how to do that part. But it, you, I mean, somebody could distill uh, your job down to just, you know, educating about history, but you and I both know there's so much more to that. Sure. I mean, I would, I would say the, the actual facts and the knowledge that you're imparting, that's probably what 30% of your actual job. Sure. And, and don't misconstrue what I'm saying here as to be like, I don't think there should be career politicians. What I mean is like, I understand that there is the need for some amount of career politicians because they're going to get better at writing, passing, judiciating these committees, things like that. Um, I, I completely see some need for it. The problem is some of these career politicians, I would venture to say the majority of these career politicians have become so corrupt with their insider trading, um, with thing with their lobbying with their pork barrel funding like uh, so much garbage happens in congress and i, I mean i would say 100 percent. there's the machiavelli quote uh that from uh the prince that says something like man is neither naturally good or evil he is wicked and self-serving that yeah. can be used for good it can be used for bad, but but there's no such thing as true altruism. Everyone is acting in their own self-interest. And unfortunately, a lot of people uh, uh, who get into politics find that it becomes a lot easier to affect things that benefit you or that you have a vested interest in. Sure. That's the nature of politics, though. That doesn't stop regardless of whether or not somebody is a career politician or they're a uh, footballer. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, look at George Santos who got into politics, arguably just to take advantage of those things. And he's not the only oh, yeah. one. He's yeah, just 100%. the one who got caught doing a lot of extra shady stuff. He just did a really bad job of it. You no, know, really though. But 
I and and I think though what I'm trying to get at when I say this is that people are upset with the amount of that going on. And so the idea yeah. is, okay, if we've had all these people that we're voting for who are insiders and this is what's happening, let's try the outsiders because we know we can't trust these people. So let's try something else. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that I, especially in Argentina's case, I can kind of get it. Right. I, I mean, two hundred eleven percent inflation rate in twenty twenty three alone. I oh, mean, yeah. yeah, I would be pissed yeah, if I was it, Argentina. And, and to be fair to to Malay, they've tried a lot of different solutions, uh, and and this is still where they've they've ended up. So I I can understand that sentiment, but also I I think it was done haphazardly i I think i I think this this uh electing this guy to shake things up i think is haphazard i think that this is one of those time will tell things and this is why i talk about it as a test that a lot of my personal views hinge on because he's doing a lot of things i'm not going to say everything he's doing is something i want to see done here but a lot of things he's doing are things that i've been saying for years that we should be doing to cut things down or to cut things back or things that I would like to see done. Biden should be asking commander how to deal with the uh, gas prices. (laughs) (laughs) So what I I would counter, I'm going to go back to another point you made earlier where you're talking about how he's cutting a lot of jobs that are essential and he's getting rid of a lot of, Um, ministries or sections that are essential for regulation. And it turns out looking at it a little bit more, he's only getting rid of, I think four, three or four. Um, And the rest that he's getting rid of are actually being combined into him, into some. So he, for example, completely got rid of the ministry of culture, which is their whole arts society thing. Um, Okay. I, I could make an argument that that's essential, but, but I understand why that would be cut. Right. Well, and the thing is, you don't need a ministry of art. People can go do art without a government ministry. I think that's his argument is I, I understand yeah. the idea of trying to fund the arts as an arts and humanities teacher and someone who like is involved in music and theater and things like that. Like I get it, but I also get that that is not an essential <laughs> for a government entity to have um yeah we i mean we could go into uh how how it protects um people's access and availability to do arts which i think the ability to have arts and artistic expression and and that kind of thing is kind of a human necessity but i i get what you're saying and that's a much deeper ideological and, and sure. metaphysical conversation. So then he's also um, got rid of the Ministry of Women, Gender, and Diversity. Okay. Again, essential. Uh, but mm. I understand why it's cut. See, from a libertarian perspective, I would be like, see, libertarians come from the idea that they're already equal. Why should we be focusing? Like, 
I as a person because, who is because they're not e- they're they they mm, mm, they mm. are equal. There's a difference between what should be and what is. What should be is that they are viewed as equal and have the same opportunities. What actually happens is not that. You're right, and I agree. However, the opposite side of that is a lot of these ministries to, and we can do a whole episode on this another time because I don't want to do this right now. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of these programs end up overcompensating. And you end up with hiring people specifically for their gender or diversity reasons rather than qualifications. And a libertarian perspective is going to say, why do I care if you're a woman? Why do I care if you're transgender, homosexual, or any other anything? I don't care about your race. I don't care about that. I care about are you qualified to do the job better than other people? Aside from that, I have no qualms. Right. So that's his perspective. I think that's my issue with with the libertarian perspective, though, is that is that it's it's great to say I don't care about that stuff. But it's much more accurate and beneficial if you not not you. I'm I'm using the general the, the general you if you realize that uh subconsciously you do care about it that's why like you know no uh, i agree after the george floyd protests there was this big thing about about not saying you know i'm not racist but rather saying i recognize that because of my you know my white privilege or you know this and and you know that that i have certain biases that i was unaware of that i'm trying to address and change that's a totally different thing than saying i'm not racist and is much more conducive to actually fixing the the systemic and inherent issues that these agencies are created in the first place to to address yeah but and if you take and if you leave it to the people to decide for themselves what i think you will find and what typically you do find is that they're not actually doing that stuff that they initially said we don't need this agency to make sure that we do sure i would i would counter that though and say that the difference here is one is a realistic point of view and one is an idealistic point of view and yeah the the problem the disconnect i won't say problem the disconnect here is that i think both viewpoints are trying to accomplish the same thing it's just that one of them is doing it by what i'll call vocal introspection where you're going around saying hey i'm working on this whereas the other is just saying i'm just going to change right now and be better right now i'm just who cares about the societal i'm going to change myself right here right now and expect that to also be the societal change and i'm not going to say that either one's i i i think they I'm not, both. i'm not sure I'm, I'm following so the one you're trying to say is hey we're going to try and change society by you know encouraging introspection and people talking about these conversations and have or having these conversations Whereas the one I'm talking yeah. about is people saying, we don't need to have a conversation about it. We're just going to do it. And the problem is that one doesn't fix the underlying societal problems that yours addresses. But 
I've also seen... Yeah, I see what you're saying. But the flip side is, I don't think I've seen a whole lot of action come out of those conversations. I have seen so many of... This is one of my big problems with a lot of these leftist leftist things is I've like I don't have any problems with some of the things that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of things that came out of like the the police reforms. I think a lot of those things were necessary, needed. I love it. But I I I I think that most of them have just been conversations and not actually a lot of change. You're you're absolutely right, but the reason that that is is because of the pushback that has hindered the progress that should and needs to be made i'll i'll say yes there's some it's it's in gridlock and if and if it i mean there have been some changes but there haven't been enough changes to actually uh significantly affect the issue with you know using police reform to affect the number of uh specifically black men who are being killed by police i will say that my issue is you're right in that there's a lot of gridlock and there's a lot of pushback i'm not going to deny that because there is and in some of those things there should be a little bit a lot of those things most of those things there should not be however it has also been my experience that a lot a lot of people i have met and had these conversations with do not actually want to have these conversations to have some amount of change happen. They want to have these conversations to show publicly that they are having those conversations. Yeah. To virtue signal. Yeah. They're, yeah, Yeah. they're Pharisees to use the biblical term, right? These people who are going out saying these things, but not actually doing things. That's been my, I mean, that's bigger problem. Yeah. I've, I've seen that too. I think that that's a, that's a fair criticism. Um, but I mean, I think that that's, uh, it's, it's, I was going to say that's not the norm, but unfortunately that is the norm. I think what, uh, I think that those, that, that particular population that mm-hmm. just wants to virtue signal, um, I think should not be uh counted with either side sure because you could yeah. make an argument that they belong to either side oh for sure 100 um, i see a lot of republicans do the same thing yeah uh but i think i think you know in terms of of again just using you know police reform uh you have you know uh uh i'll acknowledge that there are you know police departments that have made changes um uh certain um for instance like there a, a lot of police departments have had like a similar policy to stop and frisk and they've and then changed that after sure. George Floyd we still have though uh i forget what the program is called but it's like the 10 something program that uh creates a a somewhat backdoor pipeline from defense contractors to police departments that provide them with uh um uh like mrap type like armored vehicles that are you know made to withstand ieds or uh you know military technology weapons uh defense systems all of these things that that shouldn't be uh 
I, I, this, and, and there are going to be a lot of ideological arguments to this, but the civilian police force should not be a militarized force. They are civilian peacekeeping force. And there's the old adage where when you have a hammer, all you see is nails. Yeah. And so those types of things, those types of programs, those larger systemic things that didn't change after the, you know, George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter movements, um, those are the things that are actually going to affect it, but that also were so mired by the gridlock that we weren't actually able to to make any significant change. Yeah, and there's, there's and, and so that's yeah. why I think these these uh institutions that he's you're these agencies that he's cutting that are quote unquote non essential are, you know, yeah, you can survive, but in order to thrive and, and in order for the well being of your populace to improve or at least not get worse are kind of essential. Yeah, but at the same time, and so 40% of their population right now is living below the poverty line. And yeah, when, I actually heard a higher statistic, but oh, okay, but this is well, this is was... coming from an article back in December um, by the okay. art newspaper, which I'll admit is probably not the best one. Uh, but it's I, I looked specifically for a list of ministries that he cut. And this was, you know, the top result. So um, yeah. anyway, so he I think my statistic was from September. Anyway, oh, okay. so it was it was an older statistic. So here's the thing. It's it's fine and dandy to want a lot of these bonus things, but if your choice is between having a government that has a ministry of women, gender, and diversity, and having a government that is able to help you put food on your table and, you know, not die of starvation, people are gonna mm-hmm. choose that last one every single time. You know, and the Right. I'm not arguing with that. And this is not the first time we've seen something like this happen. I mean, if you look at the French Revolution, you look at the Bolshevik Revolution, you have these instances where governments are living these very bureaucratic systems. They're running these um, lavish, maybe not lifestyles. In those particular instances, yes, lavish lifestyles. But you have this, you know, basically big government with a lot of things that were deemed necessary but when it gets down to the nitty gritty, it's not doing as much as other things could be. And so it's, yes. it's an interesting historical phenomena to see that the more people's needs are taken care of, the more we move towards liberalism. And the more we move towards things like worrying about diversity, worrying about arts, worrying about culture. And then the further we get from that, the more we get towards poverty the more and more people care more about tradition, the more and more people care about their own unique culture, the more and more people care about fiscal responsibility. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's interesting to see how people prioritize things. And right now, because are based on their financial situations and right now, because their financial situation is so dire, a lot of them are just like, yeah, no, cut it all get back to the bare bones and then we can rebuild to that. And speaking of which, I just want to go over the other things he's cut or combined. So he has also cut, um, or sorry, he has combined 
the Ministry of Social Development, Ministry of Education, and the Ministry of Labor, Employment, and Social Security, which is one ministry. That's not three separate ones. Yeah. Into a single Ministry of Human Capital, <clears throat> which – so to me, I'm like, ooh, Ministry of Education that, as an that educator. That name alone is, means a, a PR boost. Yeah. Capital, Human Capital sounds like – something from Soylent Green. I'll agree with that. However, when you look at it from the sense of you're investing in your future by investing in people, I think that's an okay term. But I'll agree. First glance, I was like, ooh. Yeah, it's it's not the best name. Benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Um, And then the ministries of public works, transportation, energy, mining, and communications are all being merged into a ministry of infrastructure, which I think, I think that makes sense. With the same number of employees and the same resources that were devoted individually now also being combined into one, or are they receiving a excessively slashed budget and resources and workforce in order to oversee all of these things i would and i i think maybe you can kind of get where i'm going with the problem if the latter is the case so i i do think it's the latter however yeah however um if you look at like that the fact that the entire government had its ministries halved but only five thousand people lost their jobs like if i if we saw half of our um, departments in the federal government disappear overnight, I would expect way more than 5,000 layoffs. Even if you were to take that and just per, you know turn it into a per capita ratio. Right now, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, this is a really weird place to put an advertisement in the podcast. I mean, not only is it closer to two thirds of the way in, but Cameron was also basically right in the middle of a sentence. And you're right. This is about two thirds of the way in, and I really was right in the middle of a sentence. But here's the thing, that sentence goes nowhere. Neither do the next 20 minutes of us talking in circles about, I don't even remember what. Neither Andrew or I liked that section, so we're just gonna cut straight to the next topic. No segue, nothing. This message has been brought to you by lazy editing and even lazier writing. (laughs) Like we write this. Okay, so we recently had two primary elections. We had Iowa and New Hampshire. And I feel like Iowa went about like everyone expected. But then what happened after Iowa has been very interesting, I think. When you say it went as expected, what, what are you specifically referring to? Meaning that Trump won it in a landslide. Yes, yeah. I think I think that was I mean I think that that's kind of expected for all of them. I I was surprised with the Iowa uh caucus um uh specifically because um they had uh they had like record low temperatures. They had like a blizzard um yeah, which you know was un- not unusual for Iowa, but typically the Iowa caucus is uh, heavily publicized, heavily attended, heavily participated in. Um, they had a hundred thousand people cast votes uh, this year, 
um, in their uh, registered voter uh, or the the number of registered voters that they have is is around two million. So hugely, uh, like just no one participated in it. I know. Which, I mean, it is kind of a big, I want to say, cultural thing in Iowa. But at the same time, it's also like any other primary election where it's a big cultural thing if you're going to do it. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do think it's lower turnout than they no- than they probably normally would have gotten. But at the same time, caucusing is a fairly inefficient way for a primary election just because everybody has to get together and then it takes a long time to talk and then people got to count and it's, you know, it's so much easier to just. I'm not even sure if I understand what a caucus is. It's like a, I just know that it's different than an election. It's like a Quaker meeting, but about politics. Do they just get around and talk? Individual people still vote though. I mean, how does it. No, it's more like they just kind of come to a consensus. Let me Google this. Cause I, maybe I'm wrong. How does caucus work, Iowa? Okay. Because I, I know that that's why, even though like the Iowa caucus typically happens before the New Hampshire primary, New Hampshire is is known as the first primary because Iowa is a caucus. It's not a primary. Right. So I'm, I'm I'm really not sure how that how it works there. So Wikipedia, which I know Wikipedia gets a terrible rap, but it's not as bad as everybody says. Wikipedia um, gets a bad rap in America and America alone. And that's because it, people don't understand how to fact check anything or back up their sources. And they don't understand how to utilize Wikipedia to be right. effective. Anyway, so it says so the they caucuses... think they should stop everyone else from doing that. Sorry, that's true. Uh, so first of all, the Republican and Democrat caucuses do work slightly differently, but in general, uh, the caucuses are generally defined as a quote gatherings of neighbors, uh, rather than going to polls and casting ballots. Iowans gather at a set location in each of Iowa's precincts. Typically, these meetings occur in schools, churches, public libraries, or even individuals' houses. Caucuses are held every so two far, years. It doesn't sound any different than a primary? <laughs> So far, um, caucuses are held every two years during both the presidential and midterm seasons, but those that receive national attention are the presidential preference caucuses. Um, I'm assuming that that's basically what they're terming the the caucuses that are held during the primary election cycle. Yeah, so there's a panel that like introduces their party platforms and resolutions, um, and then the Democratic Party... It looks like it's just a lot of talking first. So everyone gets together and talks, and then the Democratic one, they vote. The Republican the, one... The people vote, or do they have... Ooh, good question. Like, representatives, councils. This might this might be... We don't need to get mired down on this. This might just be something that you and I can look it, up. Yeah, but, it looks like they elect delegates, and then those delegates vote. Okay. So I guess it's like break up into groups and then choose the group you know, delegate kind of thing. Um, I could be wrong on that. That's, that's a very skimmed reading. And then the Republican one, it's more like they just declare. They just get together and talk and declare someone. Regardless of how a caucus works differently than a primary. What I do know is that typically the Iowa caucus is 
receives a lot of participation. Yeah. And this year they didn't. Um, some of that uh, certainly can be attributed to the weather that they were having, but also part of me kind of wonders, I mean, obviously Democrat participation is going to be way lower because we've pretty much just abandoned any, Oh yeah. uh, Any entertainment of having uh, any other candidates. Um, But on the Republican side, I kind of wonder how many uh, uh, Republican voters or would be Republican voters are kind of just uh, dissatisfied with uh, any of the choices. I think it's not just dissatisfied, although that is definitely part of it. I think there's a lot of people who are dissatisfied maybe, with maybe their choices. Unmotivated would be but would be a better. I would say unmotivated phrase. because on one hand, if you say, if you use the word unmotivated, you're going to get those people who are dissatisfied and aren't going to vote. But you're yeah. also going to get the people who say Trump's going to do good, get it anyway, so I'm not going to bother. Yeah, right? yeah. I, th- I think unmotivated is is more what I meant. Yeah. I think what's interesting though is what happened not at the Iowa caucus, but what happened after is how many people dropped out either right before because they weren't polling very high or right after because they didn't do well. I was shocked that DeSantis dropped out at all. Yeah. I, oh yeah. I saw that Um, and was like, what the other, like outside of Trump, the front runner dropped out. Yeah, but I mean, he was he was the front runner, but I think he got seven percent of the delegates, and Nikki Haley got five percent, and Trump got however many more percent. It was it was he was the front runner, but it's pretty generous to say that that he was any competition, and I think that's maybe what motivated him to drop out because I really think that that he at least had the gumption yeah. to stick it out for a little bit longer. But then what was more surprising was ha- what how he acted after he dropped out, which you and I have like texted back and forth yeah. about, but it was, <laughs> it was sad. It was sad. <sighs> it, it was uh, like I like I texted you last night when we were watching the New Hampshire primary. Uh, if I didn't find Ron DeSantis so awful, I would feel bad for him. Uh, the guy has he, been, yeah, go ahead. No, good. Sorry. He uh, <laughs> so he immediately uh, endorsed Trump, a guy who has been nothing but a bully to him. Right. And just just use every opportunity and every dirty like play in the book to delegitimize DeSantis's campaign and to uh, just, you know, belittle and degrade him. And he he just rolled over and and uh, jumped on the Trump train, but not before he had to ask Trump. To please stop using uh, the DeSanctimonious name. <laughs> I don't know if that's confirmed. I haven't seen that anywhere. That is true. <laughs> that is a thing Let me that happened. See. 
I don't know if he asked, but I am seeing that Trump is saying he's not going to say it anymore. Yeah, he from the uh, the account that I heard. Uh, and I, I mean, I did hear this on uh, I heard this on Pod Save America, which is a liberal leaning podcast, but it's uh, their uh, one of their hosts, among others. Uh, is John Favreau, who was Obama's head speechwriter, uh, and it's hosted by a few other people who were also uh, uh, Obama aides, and they absolutely are doing their due diligence when they're making claims like this and reporting things that you know people have said. Um, but DeSantis, when he when he called Trump to tell him that he was giving him his endorsement what he said was does this mean that uh you'll put the the desanctimonious name to rest or something to that effect which yes i mean ron desantis has every right to make sure that you know he's gonna stop being bullied but also it's just like it, it gives a, it gives me the sense of like all right i'll be i'll be your lackey but please stop being mean to me i mean i definitely still get that sentiment i just i'm not finding anything that confirms that that phone call happened and that doesn't mean it didn't it's very possible that it did there's lots of things that go unreported in the national news especially things yeah. like this i'm just not seeing an official confirmation however i will say um, they, you're, you're pretty close with the delegates. So Trump got 20 delegates. DeSantis got nine. Haley got eight. Um, Trump only got 51% of the vote though. And yeah, but that's 51% of four or 14 or 15% of the total like registered voters that could have, uh, could have True. voted. So, uh, that's actually seven percent. I mean, uh, depending on how how many Republicans versus uh, versus Democrats, that's that's basically less than ten percent of Republican voters. Yeah, voted uh, for Trump. Here's the here's the sad thing, though. Um, according to the Associated Press, Chris Christie, who had already dropped out. Okay. Yeah. And we're probably talking write-ins here. Uh only got 35 total votes. Oh. <laughs> now, what I think is really interesting though is because Poor the Santos <laughs> I don't pity him. I don't like him at all. Um also can we can we just acknowledge the fact that among among uh or along with Ron DeSantis dropping out of the race, Asa Hutchinson dropped out of the race. And I was not aware that he was still in the race. Oh yeah, me too. Um, now here's the, here, there's two things that I think are really interesting about New Hampshire. The mm -hmm. first is that Nikki Haley, who I like, I currently, if I had to go, if my primary was today, I would vote for her. There's oh some yeah. Other you've things... been, you've been on the, the Nikki Haley train from the beginning. 
she's said a few things recently in regards to war funding and retirement age that I'm very much against, but and the I cause was of the civil war <laughs> and the cause of the civil war. Um, however, okay. Having lived in the South, I understand why she says that. I'm not going to agree with it. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's objectively wrong. She, she made the exact same mistake that the, the Penn state and Harvard uh, presidents made where right. all they, all she had to do or all the, all the, those college presidents had to do was just denounce genocide. All Nikki Haley had to do was just to, to not be caught in that gotcha trap that that uh, person yeah. at the rally set for her was just exactly it was slavery and she didn't and then last week i don't remember what uh where she was uh or no maybe it was two weeks ago but she then did it again yeah uh in a slightly different way and it, it i know that she knows that what the cause of slavery was i know that she was trying to weasel her way out of it just stop stop trying to yeah uh you know Stop trying to make make fetch happen. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's not going to happen. Um, but my father what... was the inventor of toaster strudel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what? What? I, so I think what's interesting though about the Democratic or not the Democratic, the Republican primary in New Hampshire is that she got forty three percent of the votes. Yeah, I could. I thought way more of DeSantis's voters were going to go for Trump, but apparently not. However, yeah. However, uh, there may be another explanation for this. It may not be that DeSantis voters are going for Haley. Um, so, and, and I guess we're going to have to see the next primary, what happens to see if this is the case. But New Hampshire yeah. has an inordinate amount of independent voters. Yes, and an inordinate, inordinate amount of people on their ballot because the only thing it requires to get on their ballot is a declaration that you're running for president and a thousand dollars yep however biden didn't make it onto their ballot and we'll say we'll talk about that in just a second that was a choice by the uh well, hold on, save it save it because i want to yeah. talk about that that's my other thing that's interesting about this primary um but because so trump was saying for a while that the new hampshire governor allows democrats to vote in the republican primaries and that's not true New Hampshire, you vote with the primary that you are registered to vote with. So Republicans vote yeah. Republican, Democrats vote Democrat. However, independents can vote in either one. Yeah, which is so, which is different than Oregon, where right. independents don't get to vote in either. And you have to vote for whichever party you're registered for. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, so it's. I think that is probably the most likely explanation because Nikki Haley has been doing pretty good among moderates nationwide. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll be interested to see the next primary to see if she maintains this percentage of the votes. Cause that would tell me, I think a better, that would be a better litmus test of is this DeSantis voters going to Haley or is this moderates turning out? I, I have two thoughts on this. The first thought is that, just like with Iowa, the turnout for New Hampshire was ridiculously low. Nikki, when Nikki Haley went up to basically concede their primary, uh, it uh, at least NBC was reporting seventeen percent of the vote being counted. 
about 50, a little over 50,000 total votes uh, for at least the Republican, uh, the two Republican candidates being cast. And New Hampshire has a little over a million registered voters. So that's 5%. Actually. So I think what, or, uh, yeah, uh, what, what was your actually? Um, according to The Guardian, New Hampshire, this primary actually set a voter turnout record. Oh, really? For a primary well, this, election. This 300,000 people turned out to vote. This this was uh I'm I'm specifically talking about when Nikki Haley threw in the towel at least oh, for okay. New Hampshire. There was about 50,000. And this was just me looking at the the numbers on the ticker uh gotcha. ticker tape at the bottom. Um but when she got up to speak it was it was around 50,000 votes being cast. There was like, you know, 20 25,000 being cast for Trump and 20,000 for uh, Nikki Haley. Gotcha. Uh, I, I do think I was surprised that she did it that early, but I think um, in terms of from what, from what we saw in the low voter turnout in Iowa and how soon they called the election for Trump in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing is people not possibly not engaging in the political process, at least for the primaries, because everyone thinks that Trump is already, you know, destined to get the nomination destined. or <laughs> people are just abstaining because they don't like they don't like uh, Biden and they would have liked to have some kind of primary process to at least consider or hear other candidates or for, you know, Biden to have uh, whatever the opposite of an echo chamber is in order to, you know, voice their opinion. But they also don't like either of the, you know, Republican candidates and so they're just abstaining from the entire process altogether i don't know which one is true i don't know if there's any sure. merit to that but i i think that there's something weird going on where people are dissatisfied at a level that i don't know if we've ever seen um at least within you know the last 50 years in american politics and that I, I I don't know how that's going to pan out. I, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Now, the second yeah. thing, though, that I thought was interesting about this primary election is that President Biden was not on the primary ballot, but still won. Yes. And so and correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding of why he wasn't on the ballot is because the Democratic National Committee um chose to have South Carolina be the first primary yeah. and New Hampshire yeah, New for the Hampshire Democratic. Protested. Right. Well, because New Hampshire has been the first Democratic primary since 1920. Yeah. And it is actually in their state law that they are the first Democratic primary. Yeah. And so it's it's less about Biden and more about the Democratic Party in the state of New Hampshire. And so they had their feelings that, hurt. Yeah. But also well, it doesn't matter because Biden's going to. That the Democratic primary is uh, is just a show. Oh, it's at least always for this cycle. 
No, it's always just a show because the primaries don't mm, matter no. because they get together at their convention at the end and the delegates don't mean anything because the super delegates come in and that's who actually votes. There's because there's more super delegates than yes there are actual no. delegates. So what the reason I think though that this Democratic primary is unique is because even with I mean, yeah, Biden's a shoe in to win no matter what. Um, yeah. because especially since the democratic national committee has said we're not officially running any other candidates candidates yeah, can no still one's, choose to no run. one's allowed to run against him well they're allowed to run they're just not being officially sanctioned to do it by the democratic national committee because like dean phillips yeah. is one of the people on there he got almost 20 percent of the votes marianne williamson right um however i would have expected you know, very few people want to put in that extra two second effort to write in a name yeah you know, especially and, when you have to have in-person voting, which I think I think yep, New Hampshire New does. Hampshire does. Yeah. And yeah. still, President Biden was written in on 55, 56% of the votes, which yeah. that's a that's impressive, you know. I gotta admit, like he ran a good write-in campaign. Yeah, I did he not didn't expect need to. He didn't no, he didn't need to, but I just think it's interesting that it still happened, you know. I would not have thought that that many people would have taken that extra bit of time to write in a president that they knew was going to get elected anyway. Yeah. Although I did hear um, Chuck, oh, I can't remember his last name. Schumer? Chuck something on, not Chuck Schumer. Uh, he's uh, one of the anchors on NBC. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think he had said something last night in their coverage that, uh, and this was this was fairly early on, and I also haven't f found anything to substantiate this claim, uh, nor have I reviewed the clip that I saw to make sure that I misunderstood it. But I know it was a thing that was talked about before the primary. He, uh, I think, made some kind of comment uh, saying that, like, so far by that point in the night... Um, at least on the democratic ticket uh the most the the thing that was most voted for uh with their write-in ballot was the phrase ceasefire interesting which, uh again there's as far as i can tell there's no merit uh to to uh say that biden got more or that it got more votes than Biden uh, in the long run. But I know it was a thing that was talked about beforehand as a form of protest uh, by Democrats, um, even Democrats that, you know, support Biden, which makes me concerned about Biden's, uh, uh, the effect that Biden's handling of Gaza is going to affect him in the general election. Oh, a hundred percent is because here's the thing. Oh yeah. I mean, it definitely is. You, you have – it's going to come down to a Republican president who supports Israel with a Republican constituency who supports Israel. Yeah. And a Democrat candidate who probably supports Israel but with a who constituency – supports Israel. Yeah. But with a constituency that doesn't. No. Not with a constituency who doesn't support Israel. With a constituency who doesn't support the unfettered – uh, enabling of Israel to attempt to wipe out an entire population, which 
is exactly what Netanyahu has said he will do and has been doing. And he has, he has gone on the record to say that he will not accept any resolution to this conflict that uh, allows for a two-state system. To be he fair, is, and we, we can talk about, go ahead, finish your sentence. Go ahead. Finish oh, your sentence. I, I'm just, I'm just saying it's, it's, uh, Biden has done virtually nothing to, uh, to bring about a ceasefire. I understand why he's doing that. Um, but it's not that the people who are protesting at least the, the majority of us who are against how he's handling the, you know, Israel Gaza situation. It's not that we're against Israel. It's not that we condone Hamas. It's that it could, he could do things differently and hold Israel accountable for their wrongdoing while also still supporting Israel. Uh. I've got some newer feelings about this. We might want to do another episode on that in the future. We've yeah. talked about maybe doing a Middle East episode. We can maybe talk about that again there a little bit because yeah. I've learned some new things about both sides of the conflict that haven't made me more supportive of Israel, but have made me less supportive of Gaza and Hum. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. Well, so here's the... Uh... Uh, I was watching a a an interview that um, that the the hosts of Pod Save America did with Obama, and now they were all part of Obama's White House team, part of his campaign mm -hmm. team. Uh, John Favreau was his head writer. It's a different John Favreau than that John Favreau. Yeah, it's uh, not Iron Man John Favreau. Yeah, it's not it's not uh, Iron Man Chef. Uh, yeah, it's not that John Favreau. Um, but uh, they were they were asking his opinion uh, or something, you know, about his opinion on Biden's handling of, of Gaza. And and what he said uh, really resonated with me is that what people need to understand is the phrase and it is possible to condemn the Hamas attacks on October 7th and condemn the Israeli response to those attacks and acknowledge that there are people who are without water, without food, about, uh, I think less than 25% of the aid that has supposed to been, uh, brought into Gaza, um, has actually made it, uh, in there. Uh, so it's, you know, you can acknowledge that there are people suffering in Gaza and, that there is a, a fair amount of support for Hamas's actions within Gaza. And that still doesn't mean that Israel should be dropping 20,000 pound bombs indiscriminately and leveling 80% of the buildings in at least North Gaza. And like, it's, it's not a, it's not a black and white situation. It's not a dichotomy. It is possible to, see the wrongdoing where the wrongdoing is yeah and still you know try to find a solution where there's not 
at least so many atrocities and, and where people are held accountable for their actions. I really like that. And I think that gets to the heart of what we're doing with this podcast is the power of and it's okay to have, yeah. it's okay to have nuanced feelings about something. Um, I think that's why, why it resonated with me when I heard it was, yeah. was that it was, you know, I think kind of the ethos that you and I have talked a lot about in regard to this show. And on that self-congratulatory note, <laughs> do you have a fun fact for us? Wait, no. Oh, can wait, we, what? can we talk, can we talk about how, how we think uh uh i, w- I want to talk a little bit more about the primary and okay and, really because i'm tired specifically man. nikki late. haley it's getting late i know, time, I know. So you're three hours ahead snappy man let's get to it <laughs> i i don't know i i mostly i just want to hear your your point of view because i could see nikki haley dropping out um, I think she's supposed to have a, a really big like fundraising event with a lot of uh, really wealthy people, and she really doesn't have a whole lot of grassroots funding. And if they decide to cancel that event, I think it's next week, I could see her dropping out. I could also see her staying until I think it's June 4th is the very last primary. So how, do, how are you feeling as a Republican uh, with her somewhat lackluster uh, performance. I so first of all, I'm going to challenge the as a Republican thing, but or um, sorry, as a as a cons- conservative conservative leaning uh, host. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think she stands to lose nothing by continuing, except for money, which isn't hers to begin with. She's not spending her own money on this, so That's why fair. bother? Yeah, and she doesn't get to walk away with it if she quits and has a surplus left over. So. She loses everything by leaving the election. She loses nothing by staying. Because as I told, I think I told you this a couple days ago. She she potentially, and I don't know if she's even after this, but she would potentially lose an appointment to the cabinet or she doesn't want that with Trump. Or... She already had that with Trump, and she doesn't want it. She had okay, that with yeah. Trump, and she quit it slash was fired from it at the same time. It was oh, like was she really? I quit. You can't quit. I'm firing you, or the other way around, kind of a thing. She was Let in them Trump's fire cabinet. You. Get that severance package. <laughs> Not how that works. But yeah, I no, I she doesn't want an appointment in the Trump administration. She does not like the guy. And so yeah. for her, you're right, she stands to lose a potential appointment, but she doesn't want that. So she stands to lose nothing but attention. And in politics, attention is everything. So yeah. if she stays in the race, there's a small chance she beats Trump. I don't know. That's a big chance. I don't know that it's a real chance, I, uh, but there is some chance. I hate to agree with Trump, but she's not going to win. <laughs> I, I I think it's a minuscule. A lot would have to happen for her to win the nomination. However, yeah. by staying in, she's going to get enough attention that when Trump, if he gets elected president and can no longer run again, guess who's the new front runner? Nikki Haley, because she's a big mm. name that everybody knows. I think you'll find that the next front runner is going to be Trump because he doesn't care that he can't run again. Eh. It'll be harder to argue. It it, it would be harder to argue with the current constitutional amendment than it is to argue with some of the pending court cases. Because the pending court cases have to do with how you define certain terms, whereas the constitutional amendment is very cut and clear. Yeah. Two terms, 22nd Amendment. Yeah. So, um, by 
continuing to run, she's progressing her career no matter what. Even if she goes the Tulsi Gabbard route and just kind of becomes a pundit and person on, on media, if she goes back into Congress, if or not back into Congress, she was a governor, wasn't she? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, may, you know, she might go the Mitt Romney route and go into Congress. She might, you know, she, she's got a whole lot more options that staying in the race will give her specifically because it gives her that much more media attention. It makes no sense yeah. for her to drop out any way you cut it. Um, I yeah. don't know. I, I do think that, I mean, I think the, the personal toll can't be discounted and this sure. has to be taking a massive toll on just her, the, you know, personally. Um, no more than it already I, I think, has been taking though. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I think it's not a it's not an easily rep replenished reserve, mm -hmm. and she's you know she's already, uh, I'm sure, you know, kind of grasping at whatever she can to to muster um, the the just whatever it takes to maintain this campaign um, when the odds are pretty you know stacked against her. Um, I will, I will say I, even though I, I don't see any way that she's going to win. Uh, I, I am not sure that I would, I, I'm not sure if I would rather Biden run against Trump or run against her. That's, you know, my own personal struggle, but I definitely think that this is not the end of her political career. I think that she's going to, you know, have, uh, if, if, and when she loses, the primary, she's going to have a really prolific and long-lived uh, career either, you know, in the Senate uh, or elsewhere in the public sector. I think Biden is going to have a tough election no matter what. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be but... four more years of Trump. As of right yeah. now, I think it's going to be four more years of Trump. I would love to disagree with you, but I... I I'm afraid I might have to agree to agree. On that note, give us our outro and your fun fact. Give it, yeah. So uh, the, the U.S. You. Senate, the U.S. Senate has uh, in their like cafeteria at the Capitol has been serving the same ham and bean soup every single day since 1903. The one day that they have missed was uh, during World War II when they. Uh, didn't serve it for some reason because of, of rationing. Uh, but uh, you can look up the the recipe and uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, also, thank you to House Young Club for <laughs> letting you. us use uh, their song, This Life is Tough But Fair, off their EP, Headset Emotions, uh, as our intro and outro music. I'm hungry now. Me too. I'm going to go